Welcome back to Behold the Lion. This is the second episode that we've uh, had that name. And yes, you should have heard the majestic lions roar again. So uh, we're back. I'm back here with Rory and Joel. Um, say hi, guys. <laughs> good to be back. Yeah, good to be back. Good to be back. Um, and today we'll be continuing to look at that, uh, that incredible uh, phrase from the creed, that Christ rose again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. We started looking at this last episode where we discussed what it means that Christ rose again, what the nature of the resurrection was, historically and otherwise. Now we'll be focusing a little bit on the second half of that statement, in accordance with the scriptures, where Christ's resurrection is, throughout the New Testament, said to have been foreshadowed in the Old Testament, um, and where we end up tackling some interesting questions about what the scriptures are in the first place and how we get to understand them. Now, to start us off, there is a passage that ties some of these concepts together, the idea of the scriptures with the idea of the risen Christ. And that's the story of the two travelers on the road to Emmaus in uh, Luke 24. And I think Rory has that for us. If you'd like to read it, starting in verse 13. Yes. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things, and that, that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of her company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with, with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in, in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. I'll pause there, Rory. Um, We'll get to the next part of uh, the story uh, in a bit, because I think it's also very relevant to our discussion. But uh, let's talk about this first section for a little bit. It ended on a very strong note. Uh, initial reactions. Joel, you look like you want to say something. I, I'm, I'm really trying hard um, not to say the same joke that I said when we were prepping for the podcast <laughs> and talk about how, how much I would have done. To, to have heard that conversation and, and, you know, ask Christ questions, which I think See, is... See, you brought it up anyway. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was trying not to, but Artisher pressed the matter. Um, yeah, it, it, must have been, it must have been really something to overhear, um, especially hearing how distraught they were over that. Mm-hmm. Um, the description of how, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them and all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And you see this in Acts as well, when Paul is going around teaching the scriptures, that there really is just a wealth of information in the Old Testament about the coming Christ. And a lot of it's really not, it's not easy. It requires a deep, deep understanding of the scriptures that Christ himself had, the apostles had, and something that I hope that we all can continue to grow in, where um, often just a very superficial reading will pass by a lot of the, the deeper the deeper messages that often are just like a verse here, a verse there, a short promise that doesn't seem to reconcile with some of the other things that have also been promised about the Messiah. Mm-hmm. Right. I think that's a good point because what, we, what we're seeing here, basically, these guys are distraught. They're seeing their expectations shattered. Obviously, to this point, they probably hadn't seen this in the scriptures no. or uh, didn't have a full sense of it. Clearly, the uh, main Jewish leaders of the day didn't have a sense of, you know, uh, this in the scriptures because they they thought probably that you know they had killed the troublemaker and now could get on with with things mm-hmm. as 
as usual. So I'm very, I'm very curious. We will get to the next part of the story, but where do we see Christ, uh, Christ's death, his resurrection in the Old Testament? Because this passage seems to make it very clear. Christ himself says that uh, these things were necessary and you should be able to see them mm-hmm. or they are there in, in what was written before. Yeah. And I'd also like to note that Jewish theology today is not necessarily Jewish theology then. So um, a lot of the rabbinic traditions were compiled and standardized after this, after the first century or the end of the first century, after the destruction of the temple. And so... And often as a reaction yes, to Christian Yeah, movements. so you have reactions with um, modifying the interpretation of various passages or de-emphasizing certain themes. It did actually exist in the early in earlier periods. So... Um, we might, you can also question, like, it's not like, oh, the Sanhedrin had the exact same understanding of the Torah that, um, the modern rabbis will tell you, which included, and you see this in early rabbinic tradition, um, the suffering Messiah, which they called the, uh, Mashiach ben Yosef, the son of Joseph, because Joseph is a figure of, um, like, of a man who suffers on behalf of Israel and saves this Israel. This is the, the Genesis Joseph. Yes, correct, the yeah. Genesis Joseph. So you see um, the Messiah ben Yosef and the Bas- Messiah ben David. And those are both, those, even some of the early rabbis had the understanding that there seemed to be these messianic threads in the Old Testament of what, like a messianic figure who seems to have to suffer and even die for the sins of the people and through that bring them salvation in some way. And then also this triumphant kingly figure who will wield the, the scepter of the house of David forever. And how, and so there are those things and there are, and clearly like the idea of the resurrection was still like standard belief in Orthodox Judaism. And you can see at the time as standard belief among the Jews other than like the, the small sect of the Sadducees. Um, so a lot of these things, it's good to keep that in mind where even, even if it's a little hard to dig through and like some of the passages, the average person's not going to be familiar. The Jews at the time were familiar with a lot of this. Mm-hmm. Got it. It's, and this isn't the only passage in the New Testament that talks about this deep relationship with Scripture and Christ's fulfillment of it. One of like the most obvious that always jumps up to, uh, jumps out to me when we're talking about this is like um, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, right? Very very obvious example. Um, I'll briefly outline the story because we already you know did a, did a lot of it and we'll really focus on Emmaus. But you know, so the 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 Philippian eunuch is is uh, riding in his uh, caravan um, and and reading uh, Isaiah, right? Reading the passage of the suffering servant when when Philip goes to him and he he asks Philip what what is what does this mean? What does this talk about? Right. And, and Philip, you know, talks about how it was fulfilled in the person of Christ. Right. And, and, and elaborates more on that story. Um, just for reference, the, that story is in Acts uh, chapter eight, verses 26 to basically the end of, of chapter eight. But um, I, I always thought it was, it was, it was really, and, and then when the Ethiopian eunuch sees how the scriptures are fulfilled in Christ, he immediately has this desire to be baptized, right? And then you, you, we catch up more on this thread of the interweaving of scripture and, uh, and, and Christ in Corinthians. Um, so what, one really fun chapter that's actually almost uh, paraphrasing, or I guess the reverse, uh, uh, is very or is from which the creed is paraphrased, right? 1 Corinthians 15. Um, when it talks about the the scriptures, um, right? So it says in verse three, uh, verses three to four, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, which is like almost entirely what we still say today, right? In the creed. Um, and so you can see that Early on in Christianity, there was this foundational idea of the creed, which which we've talked about, right? This idea of being in accord with the scriptures, this perspective, right, of the resurrection from which we would look back at the scriptures with this new lens and find all sorts of things that we hadn't seen before 
while also fulfilling all the things that we had seen. Um, and, and yeah. I, I think that's really good. Uh, you guys have raised some great points, uh, Rory. You brought out the suffering servant, conquering king dichotomy, essentially, yes. that that was picked up on at the time by um, mm-hmm. Jewish commentators. Uh, Joel, you brought out uh, that passage in 1 Corinthians, I think, is especially relevant. Mm-hmm. Christ's death, according to the scriptures, his he resurrection, says it twice, according too, right? to the death scriptures. Right, really for emphasis. Uh, I'm curious. Can we discuss any specific passages where we see this? I mean, the Ethiopian eunuch was reading, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Isaiah 53. Yeah. Yeah. I think Though, that if... Yeah, I'll, go ahead, Rory. And we've brought up Isaiah 53 before yeah. in the podcast, having to do with the crucifixion specifically. So but the at the very end of chapter 53, um, well, it's not actually that long of a chapter, but if you look at um, verse 8... By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He had, has put him to grief when his soul made an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, be made, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. So there, there's still, you, uh, you see this crushing him um, to like he gets crushed, he gets cut off from the land of the living. But then you have an upbeat of hope mm-hmm. that comes after that of uh, how he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. So it's like, it's definitely not really strongly stated, but it, there's still like this glimmer of hope. Like, wait, he was just cut off from the land of the living. Right. I think the crucifixion is in some ways... Uh, more clearly predicted in that suffering servant yes. picture. Um, one one passage also that's very often quoted is Psalm 22, which is precisely what Christ uh, quotes from in his uh, dying words on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is straight from that psalm. And Christian commentators in particular will look at that psalm and talk about how the language of piercing and bones being out of joint seems to mimic uh, or seems to uh, anticipate um, the the crucifixion of Christ, um, but that Psalm too ends with a note of hope as well. Um, and one of the verses, actually, the Psalms, I believe, are the most quoted Old Testament book in in mm-hmm. the entire New Testament. And uh, one of the does either of you guys remember which which are the passages that are quoted to support the resurrection from the Psalms? Um, well, there is Psalm. Um, there's. I'm not sure where it's quoted, but you've got Psalm 16 of you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make me make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. So the whole, there is the promise. A, there seems to be the suffering servant. B, the Holy, the Holy One of God will not see corruption. And in that case, it also doesn't make sense. Um, Jesus, I believe, and then also Peter um, applies that to Christ and says, well, David died and saw corruption. So he's not talking about David, but he also is not talking about God the Father, because why? of, cor- of course God the Father is not going to let God the Father see corruption. Right, right. Who is this? Who is he talking about? And it's quoted in reference to Christ. The secondary figure who uh, in Psalm 110 is called David's Lord, but is also, you know, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, called son of David. Christ raises that paradox himself. Yeah. Joel, any any passages come to mind? Yeah, Yeah. I mean, the earliest passage, right? Genesis. You you even have the promise of Christ, right? In the the very creation. The proto-evangelion. The proto-evangelion. Does someone want to... Oh, you're the classics major. Don't ask someone. You can do it. (laughs) Proto-Evangelion. Evangelion, evangelism, uh, basically means gospel, good news. And uh, proto, uh, you know it from prototype, you know, uh, kind of an early early model, an anticipation, so to speak. This is the um, 
foreshadowing of the gospel, essentially. Mm-hmm. And there's two notes, even before you get to the specific passage that's often referred to as the Proto-Evangelion, you have interesting things about the creation story itself that aren't fully revealed uh, in their full beauty until we get to Christ and understand more about the nature of Trinity of the Trinity, mm-hmm. right? There was always this question um, in Judaism, especially early on, about why God takes essentially the royal we in, in, in early in Genesis, right? He says, let us make man in our image after our likeness, right? What does that mean? Well, you know, who's our here, right? And, and there are very few passages in scripture where, where God, you know, refers to himself with the, the royal we, so to speak, right? Saying, I am the Lord your God later, right? So that was very interesting. And then proto, the Proto-Evangelion more precisely, right? When God promises, um, right here when he curses the serpent and says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Mm-hmm. Right? There's a promise of the offspring of the woman being right. bruised yet crushing Satan's head. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So there are, we, we talked about some of these passages, Psalms, Isaiah, in the Psalms, Isaiah, you know, Genesis. There's Zechariah, too. Zechariah. There's lots of they them. look on him whom they have pierced. <laughs> right. There's lots of them, and these get picked up in the New Testament and by later Christian authors. But I'm curious. Um, sometimes you'll hear Christian preachers, in particular, talk about how, you know, everything, literally everything in the Old Testament points ahead to Christ. And sometimes... I don't know, what would you say to someone who's skeptical? What would you say to someone who says, you know, to, to the man with a hammer, everything looks like a nail, and, you know, yes. uh, once you, once you uh, I mean, you hear Christian commentators, okay, there's some passages that are very suggestive in the Old Testament, and there's others mm-hmm. that maybe are not so much. You, uh, there's this whole discussion of typology where you'll see, uh, you look at Old Testament figures and say, oh, but that was actually um, foreshadowing Christ. I mean, how much of this is exegesis? Yeah, how, uh, much, how much of this is us putting on interpretations yes. later? That's, mm-hmm. I mean, that's a good question. So, yeah, that's it's a very important discussion, and I think especially for for Jewish people, that that's a big thing that they'll accuse, and then you'll hear it, and by just general non Christians that oh, it's just appropriating. They just appropriated the Jewish scriptures for their own ends. This is not what the scriptures actually originally meant, and. Some of this, I think, is just a confusion. People are really not being very tidy with their methods of exegesis, where there, there, def, there are typological arguments, and then there are also arguments from the literal meaning of the passage. So you've got, you have prophecies that are, not, are about nothing else than the coming Messiah. But that's actually not the majority of prophecies that talk about the Messiah. There are other prophecies in which it is distinctly prophesying something that's within the day of the prophet, yet there are still elements of it that really don't seem to be contained by that coming fulfillment. So, Or they are fully contained in that coming fulfillment, but they're supposed to reflect, like, um, they, the typology is a way of just seeing how much the Messiah ties into the entire narrative scripture. So people aren't always very tidy about, wait, oh, this is a prophecy, as in it, it's a typology of Christ, or no, this is actually a prophecy of Christ. And that, and the, and you'll see in the New Testament, they quote both. And so if people aren't aware of that, sometimes it can really confuse them or even shake their faith when they start looking back and like, wait, this passage wasn't talking just about Jesus. Like, well, no, nobody thought that. The the authors of the New Testament weren't dumb. They knew their Bibles inside and out, and they were aware that they were contextual things. A, a good example of that, uh, I'll have to find it, um, 2 Samuel and the promise to David about Solomon coming and his lineage, where it specifically is in the con- context of David's son and how God will discipline him with a rod of iron and bring him back. But then there, it's all enwrapped with this broader promise of a son who will sit on the throne forever. So you can see, like, there are clearly elements that are fulfilled in Solomon very directly, and that's why it was a relevant prophecy for David in that moment. Because if David is wondering, like, what's, what's going to happen to my throne? What's going to happen to my dynasty? And then he just gives him, like, well, something that's 
centuries down the line. It's not a whole lot of comfort in the moment um, often. So you see this double contextualization that if you're, if you're careful in your Bible study, you can see. And then you have dynamics like um, where you can't have passages that are double valent in certain ways. So it's, it's not a simple thing, and it requires careful study. And I think if people are too simplistic about it, they can end up really getting kicked in the teeth when they learn that, wait, this isn't quite as straightforward as I thought. Mm-hmm. It's, it, we, we have to be careful when reading the Bible not to read it as uh, a treatise. I guess. Uh, I mean, in a certain sense, but not necessarily like, you know, a textbook. There we go. That's probably better, right? Like a math textbook. Like it's not just axioms, right? And then proofs one-to-one, right? It's enwrapped in this beautiful narrative, right? And, and learning how to read the narrative, learning mm-hmm. yeah. these tensions, like like Rory mentions, right? This tension between the suffering servant and the servant who will reign, uh, the king who will reign forever. And the Lord promising both to save his people, Israel, but also to send them a savior, right? These two tensions, right? Yes. And reading these narratives um, will give you, uh, uh, if you if you read them with the, the proper lens, Christ, right? But it's not it's not um, it's not it's not a logistic proof. It's more like looking at all of these and seeing the figure of Christ in the way he interacts with so many of these in such minute, like very specific ways, right? How else do you solve the tension of? You know, God Himself promising to rescue His people Israel, and God promising to send a Savior without the person of Christ. Right? How do you solve these? Not solve is maybe the right wrong word, but, right, but how do, yeah, how do you resolve right. these? Um, yeah. Resolve, I guess. <laughs> yeah. How do you resolve these uh, these different tensions, uh, uh, prophecies, uh, in a way that that Christ didn't, and and somehow perfects in, in a lot of ways. Like there's just it's, it's more like a preponderance of the evidence sort mm-hmm. of thing, right? Right. Uh, and to those, I mean, one, one passage that's been kind of helpful to me in thinking about these things uh, in terms of the Psalms and so on, especially people coming from a more uh, secular mindset might say, I don't think, you know, David was thinking about Jesus specifically when he was writing these things. And sure, but, uh, and it is true, and we need to take into account that the Old Testament texts were written for a specific historical context in mind. Uh, that said, uh, this is in C.S. Lewis's book on the Psalms. Um, there is a sense in which, you know, you can, it, it is within our judgment to say that, you know, for, for an author at the time, if the author had been brought to see the full unfolding of events afterwards and brought, been brought to see, you know, the fulfillment in Christ could have said, yes, this is what I was tending toward in a sense. This is what I anticipated in some sense, insofar as I look toward a Messiah generally, mm-hmm. insofar as I look toward a greater righteousness to come, mm-hmm. uh, but did not fully see at the time. Um, I'm going to uh, move us along here. Yeah. I, I do think that... You, get, you could talk about all the different passages for weeks. <laughs> right. Something funny comes to mind. I forget, this might be in Justin Martyr somewhere. It's one of the older, uh, it's one of the um, earlier church writings, but uh, they're talking about, he's talking, I think, about the symbolism of the cross and starts talking about how, you know, how a ship's, uh, you know, mast has basically a cross shape in it. And, <laughs> and, and, and so... Wait, it's like the candy cane. Did we talk about the candy cane? Yeah, we, we might have talked that? about yeah. the candy cane. But, and, and someone coming to that might be like, look at this guy, he's just seeing his religion everywhere. On the other hand, I want to posit that uh, perhaps, you know, I don't think Justin Martyr was founding his entire Christian apologetic on the fact that you see crosses like out no. of nature. But but what I do want to suggest is, I mean, this kind of behavior is very reminiscent of a man in love who sees uh, who, who sees reminders of his beloved everywhere he looks. And hence you get a lot of moony poetry about nature and stuff that <laughs> reminds you of, you know, your beloved. But my... And what I want to highlight here is the 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 how significant this change is. Where one second you have people who are confused, who are distraught, who don't see Christ anywhere in the scriptures, and frankly anywhere in the world because they think he's dead. And then the other second you have them seeing Christ next to them, seeing them everywhere. There's a drastic change. This happens in the story of the road to Emmaus, which. Uh, we should. I think we should pick back up um, if one of you guys wants to take us from verse uh, twenty-eight on. So they drew near to the near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if they were going as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, "Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent." So he went in to stay with them. 
When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were open and they recognized him and he vanished from the sight, from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. All right. Thanks, Joel. Something very interesting happens here. Uh, there's this moment of drastic change. Their eyes are, they're walking, they're distraught. You know, they say, we don't get what happened. We thought Jesus was who he said he was. And then he died, got killed. Uh, we don't get it. And then... Could you imagine how that must... Like, I, I sometimes I feel like we don't quite recognize how distraught post-crucifixion the apostles were, right? Like, imagine you're following this man who you get... Who at some... You know, after a while of journeying with him, right? Peter is convinced that he is the son of God, right? He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living it's God. It's getting pretty ex- exultant, too. Like, right. with the palm... with. Um, the, the Paul Branches, Palm Hosanna, Sunday. Hosanna, yeah. It's not Palm Sunday, right. but <laughs> this, the original, the yeah. re, the original event when Hose, everyone's crying out in the streets and right. laying out their their clothes and in front of him so that he doesn't have to walk on the ground and all this. Just the sort of imagine the adrenaline for the disciples when they're yeah, seeing. He this. might actually be who he, he says will he be. Is, yeah. Like, will he come and reign in glory? Will right. he? And finally deliver them from Rome, and then just to see him, And then to see, like, that short period of time go from the level of just crazy elation, just like, wow, like, things are coming together. We were thinking that this is the Messiah, and he's coming to Jerusalem, things are building up, and then he gets killed. Right. And then, you know, your close friends who are close to him too, start saying things about how they've seen him come back from the dead. And it's all very, it's still very confusing. The sheep are scattered too. They're not all together. Right. And so these guys are confused, um, right? And, uh, you know, this guy comes along, starts explaining the scriptures to them. It's funny, incidentally, I think, uh, you know, if anyone ever in history could say, I told you so, it was probably Jesus uh, who predicted his death multiple times. But anyway, um, he comes and he starts explaining the scriptures to them. They still, I mean, they're probably wondering who this guy is, but they don't realize that it's him until it says their eyes are opened. What's the nature of this change? What's going on here? Because after this, their hearts are set on fire, basically, and they start running back. They see Christ in the scriptures. They believe what he said about... um, you know his his uh, himself and his re- death and resurrection. They something's changed. Um, what's going on here? And for that matter, what does it tell us about how how we might approach the scriptures? Well, I think one one phrase that's really important, right, is did not our hearts burn within us while he revealed the scriptures, right? And so, you know, we can get very analytical about this typology and this prophecy, as mm-hmm. you said. But like Ardashir mentioned, right, some of it is just falling in love. Right, and and that's clearly what happened, um, and then you know, uh, uh, being revealed to them in the breaking of the bread, right, uh, uh, in the nature of, of that holy communion, right, and and how that works. Um, yeah, it's was it was reminding me of the beginning of First Corinthians, where um, Paul says that uh, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Um, just And then he continues on this theme of, there is this, like, the open, the opening of the eyes of, and you see this in Acts of call, calling those who are in darkness into light where he opens their eyes and cause them, causes them to repent and believe in radical ways where I don't think we need, we really shouldn't underestimate the work of the Holy Spirit in allowing people to read the scriptures and to see them and understand them. Not just in that technical way, because ultimately you could always like not 
you could always disbelieve like if you're not apart from the power of God. It's very, it's very easy to just not to dissect. You could, no matter how compelling it is, you could say, wow, like that's really strange that the Jewish scriptures predict this guy who's going to come in a lowly form that no one recognizes him. He's going to suffer and die for the sins of people while at the same time, um, like transform the nations that he will be a light to the Gentiles that people will stream to him and then he will rule the world yet the you see and there's this guy who came to israel lived that life was crucified died and was buried and then his disciples claim that he was resurrected from the dead and then people from all over the world were streaming from him and there and you can look at this and then even read some of the jewish texts and then look at the scriptures and see that literally like even modern judaism doesn't even acknowledge a lot of this theology that used to exist um and it's kind of been forgotten even it's kind of surprising that some of it's even in the early rabbis after christianity where some of it's even just faded more over time and um you could always say wow that's a lot of coincidences well, that's really strange. I guess they were right in reading the scriptures, and then they must have just like made it up to match the scriptures because they understood it. So you can always, apart from faith and apart from the work of God, just not buy it. Mm-hmm. Which it's it's part of this like um, beautiful mystery of how God makes it both extremely apparent you know when reading the old testament but at the same time cloaks within it enough mystery where it still requires the gift and the exercise of faith it's 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 a band right yeah those are good those are good points because uh, as i hear this uh, i just sympathize a lot with the person who might be New, new to Christianity, might have read some of the Bible for, you know, CC uh, mm-hmm. uh, or Litham and is saying, okay, I mean, the Old Testament or Hebrew Bible, you know, it's like most of the Bible. It's a lot of text. Um, and I feel like I couldn't read through it, certainly, and come away with, you know, the sense of, you know, this Messiah who is going to die and rise again that ma- neatly maps on to, to, um, to, the, uh, to, to the passion narrative of Christ. And yeah. It's not, you're not, if you're just going to be some bystander who reads through it, you're not going to get it. But read Psalm 119 and the way that the Jewish people were called to preserve the scriptures and dwell on the scriptures and read the scriptures, pondering them in their hearts, meditating on them day by day, that this was their calling. This was their calling. And it's what many of them dedicated their entire lives to. And so the, the standard of, oh, is this in the scriptures is more than can I get this on a prima facie reading. Yeah. Um, I think, I think to that point, I mean, we do see this idea of fulfillment of expectations, especially early on in Luke with, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, Simon in the temple who says, yes, this is what God has promised. And I'm Mm -hmm. thankful that I was here to see this. Um, one verse that had been on my mind, uh, this is in Luke 16 as well. It's the story of Lazarus and the rich man where Christ speaks of a rich man dying and asking Abraham uh, in the afterlife to send, uh, uh, to send the uh, dead poor man, Lazarus, back to life to warn his brothers about you know, uh, how they're living. And Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. This is Luke 16, 29. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And that last verse, I think, is very pungent, very suggestive, given our... Pungent. Uh, I like that word, <laughs> pungent, yeah. Smelly. <laughs> very, very, very suggestive, redolent of, uh, of uh, different senses here in... Um, our conversation about how do the scriptures relate to the resurrection of Christ. Now, one thing I do want to clarify, though, I do not think the expectation really was in Christ's mind that all the disciples would have had this perfect picture of his death and resurrection from the scriptures because he told it to them straight up several times and they still didn't get it. So, yeah. um, They're like, you're, you're saying something weird again. Jesus. <laughs> yeah. You said some weird stuff and yeah. we didn't understand it. You're just... Here's another one. <laughs> it reminds me of um, um, 
I watched one small clip of The Chosen out of, um, you know, good show, good show. But uh, there's, this, there's a scene where uh, Andrew is eating, right? And he asks the Lord, uh, do you want some food? And the Lord says, you know, my food uh, is, not, is not of this world. I, I think he might even say, like, the exact verse, like, my, my food is to do the, the, the will of my father. And Andrew's like, what? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I just imagine that's what it's like over and over. Right. Over and over until they understand. Now, this is an interesting point uh, I want to make here, and we'll get into this question of interpretation in the time we have left. Um, but uh, some people might be skeptical when they hear all this, when they say, all right, so um, if I want to believe all this, uh, then I need to kind of believe it already, in a sense. Uh, if I want to see Christ in the Old Testament, I need to kind of see him already, if that makes sense. It's the hammer and nail analogy again. Now, first, my suggestion is when Christ explained the Old Testament to the travelers on the road to Emmaus, did he give them a hammer or did he rather give them a key for one thing, um, a key to making sense of all of it? Mm-hmm. On the other hand, and, and uh, yeah, thoughts on that, because I have something else, uh, as a possibly a secular analogy, but we'll get to that. I think I'll, I'll start. And that's a good, that's a very good analogy where once you start, at least for me, digging into some of the typology, some of the other things in the Old Testament, it really is a key where it just f- flowers. It opens up in a way that is kind of mind-boggling, just in multiple levels and different stories, how there's just so... Some, like, there definitely are times when you can hear somebody like, and this is a figure of Christ. And like, ah, I don't know, I'm not so sure about that. Like the um, candy canes, yeah. Yeah, like, but you you definitely have that. But at the same time, there's such a rich layering that seems to come out of it that is very, it, it's not, like, you, you can definitely look at other religions where they've co-opted scriptures from this, that, the other thing. Sorry to bash the Mormons, but you can find you can find groups where they definitely co-opted an earlier religion scriptures, and then you can start looking at how they co-opted it, and it's very shallow and it falls apart. It doesn't actually offer you deep insights into the substance of the stories in ways you'd never seen before. And normally, when you have these groups that are co-opting different different texts, they also don't actually show that much familiarity with them. Where I'd also see this in Islam, where I'm reading the Quran, there's a lot of references to different biblical characters, but it seems to really, and sorry to any of the Muslim listeners, this is a Christian's perspective, listening to some of the explanations, it just seems to not get it. It just seems to kind of just missed a lot of the points that are being made. It, it's a very simplistic. It doesn't understand like a lot of the themes that it existed in the Old Testament and then claims that Muhammad is truly bringing back the true message while at the same time not actually picking up like 95% of the themes that are present. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, to then have this group of uneducated fishermen then pick this up and then supposedly co-opt it into a different system and then see how much it blossoms underneath further study, I think is pretty amazing. And at least should give, render it with more respect. Like this is a really intricately put together like understanding of the scriptures that are not to be dismissed lightly and show that the people, the early Christians, if you read Paul, if you read Peter, show an intimate, knowledge and appreciation of the different themes and promises that exist to on a level that very few people do yeah and uh you see this in the letter of paul's the um the there's multiple there's like a, a few different feedback loops right it's not as though um in the early church you had uh random groups like plopped down with, you know, the Hebrew scriptures and expected to understand it like fully, right? But but you see this continuation of what Christ is doing on the road to Emmaus, where Christ re- reveals it 
to these two disciples, right? And, you know, as he did to the apostles during his life, right? And then, you know, they, together with Paul, go out, right, and reveal it more to 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 uh to the early christians right and uh and and carry on that mission and then you have and then paul entrusts that to timothy right and timothy goes out and does the same thing right and so you have um it's not meant to be a uh you know a a dropped off like little package right it's a, a math textbook proof right but rather it's this narrative theme that together with the um the love of community and the, and the the these apostles uh, uh, entrusted, uh, especially in the early church, to continue and carry on this. But, and as uh, it says in Hebrews, I believe that the word of the Lord is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, able right. to pierce the joint soul and spirit. Where there's this living presence of the word as received by the body of faith, the body of believers, the church. Well, first Israel, the Jewish people, and then the church, where it's a lip. Um, the claim, yeah, is not that there is just you know this package that got dropped off, and like, and we just need. <laughs> there's a joke that I heard about some some theologians that don't. They always are. Like, a lot of textual critics are constantly trying to reassemble what the original manuscript was or whatever. And generally it's just very minute differences, but uh, I've heard it referred to as the lost Princeton Bible. It's the Bible that God gave us and that nobody has, as opposed to the living word of God that exists, that is God's word and promises to the body of faith to be received by them and to go alongside them, guiding them. And that the very... The very claim is that it's supposed to be read in that context and that it's only in that context that God will truly be communicating what he meant to communicate. So the nature of trying to take it out of that context um, is very, is alien to the very concept. Right. Yeah. I think you both have raised points about the word being living, uh, the word being sort of experienced in community. I think there's something very beautiful about how Again, Joel, you touched on this briefly in your comment on the Emmaus story, but how they their eyes are opened when they break bread with Christ in this gesture of fellowship and of um, community, communing with him um, at, at the same table. There's uh, this idea that, yeah, it's uh, the, the language of the Psalms, taste and see that the Lord is good. Uh, it's, it's this experiential call. So, uh, again, it's not experience divorced from truth content nor the other way around, but uh, it, it's, this, it's this call to, you know, see that this is true. Um, come experience it. Uh, come live it, right. And uh, one, one point, and then I'll... Seek and you will find, knock, and the door will be open. Right. And I like that, and we'll get back to that in one second. One point I do want to address is that if someone's still saying, oh, all this is very nice, uh, it's, you know, kind of... Sounds religious, you know, you're, you're reading your interpretation into it, but it's not really there. I mean, I feel like a lot of, often that sort of critique will be trying to eat its cake and have it too, as it were, uh, in the sense that a lot of times people will be like, oh, you can't just say there's one right interpretation of a text. You can read it so many other ways, hence why you come up with this really weird interpretation of the Old Testament text. But on the other hand, when you critique this interpretation as not standing, not having evidence to stand on, then you're assuming that there is a more valid interpretation than another. And one point we've been trying to get to here is that this interpretation doesn't just come out of nowhere. Even historically, uh, uh, Jewish commentators on the Old Testament uh, had things that looked suspiciously similar to um, what was fulfilled in Christ. So that's one point I want to make. And then the other point I want to um, push on is in terms of some people might say, okay, so for one second, people didn't believe it. The other second, they're talking all about Christ in the Old Testament. How does that happen? Uh, great book, Stephen Kuhn, um, Structure of Scientific Revolutions. It popularized the term paradigm shift, uh, but it's this Good idea. stuff. <laughs> it popularized, uh, it's, it's this idea that even within, just to provide a secular analog or a non-religious specifically analog, that, uh, for instance, the whole Copernicus situation, um, Honestly, before Galileo, um, this uh, the the idea that the or that everything revolved around the Earth had evidence, so to speak, to back it up. In the sense that everyone had been working on it, you know, all the work was done in that direction. It wasn't really conceivable to think of it another way. 
once the other interpretation is adopted, and it's not only evidential factors that play into that, but also political and other factors of the day, people realize, oh, this makes so much more sense yes. than what we thought before. And so this kind of shift is not, you know, this exclusively bizarre, um, only faith-driven religious conversion thing that uh, this knowledge is only available to the initiated, right? Yeah. You will fully experience it more as you do it, but our invitation is to come look at some of this evidence, and as you get drawn in by this truth, you can taste and see that it is, it is good, um, so to speak. Amen. I guess my last question to you guys is this. Someone's listening and wondering how to, okay, how do I, how do I start on this? How do I start with the Bible basically? And how do I start by, with this, with this whole point about community that we've made to experience the risen Christ, um, through, through his word? Um, how do I do this? Do I just pick it up and start reading? Uh, what, what do I, what do I need to do? Yeah, I mean, the obvious plug is if you're at Columbia, right, there's like so many Bible studies available to you, you know, whether it's Christian Union, CCM, or, or RUF, or, you know, whatever, I guess, floats your boat in a certain sense. Um, but, yeah. Chinese Bible study. Right, yeah. Um, so there's that, obviously. Um, as, a, as a Catholic, I would say that there are um, a lot of resources in terms of daily meditations on scriptures, right? Um there are the Office of the Readings, right, in which every day we read uh, uh, meditations on the scriptures. Every day for the community, right, the, the idea is that the whole church reads the same readings every day. And through that, we can, we can experience um, a deep fellowship no matter the distance. Um, but a lot of that has to do with just finding good resources on, online, right, good, good YouTube videos, good et cetera, et cetera, um, you know, listening to your... Uh, respective minister, um, and, and, and how they, they interpret it and meeting with them and that sort of thing. Um, so, you know, as far as Catholic resources, there's like a billion and one, um, you know, Halo, uh, is like a very popular app that some people really like that I've never used. There's this other app called Katina that I do use that, that, that has very helpful, uh, early church father commentary. Um, so I'd recommend that. Um, Roy, I'm sure you have even more than yeah, a billion so and one. So as far as um, it de depends which group I'm talking to, yeah, sure. since uh, there are lots of different subsections. If I'm going to talk to somebody who doesn't, who would not identify as a Christian, but is interested in checking it out, it, yeah, it seems like there's there's a lot of interesting stuff. It's at least worth giving consideration. I'd say um, read um, read the Gospels and talk. I would recommend like some of, getting in touch with some of the people that Joel already mentioned. There are people who are happy to discuss you can, things, and so you can see what actually it looks like for people to be living out their faith, their Christian faith, and not just some sort of idea that you form in your head regarding the stereotypes you've seen on TV or, or whatever like random person you happen to have met over your life, um, who maybe didn't give a great impression. Um, so there's that of actually reading some of the the gospels, reading some of the New Testament, and I would say even and pray and, and pray to God and ask that He would um, reveal Himself to you that that you are, if you are truly trying to be open about it, and truly trying to see that this is the truth, that you should um, do that. Find Christians, read read the gospels for yourself and think about them seriously and that and pray and pray that god would show himself yeah some people are really big on you know not even starting with the gospels and just tackling a genesis head on and like plunging in props to you if you do that but I again you, you, yeah. you get you get stuck about yeah. i would say yeah. you know 75 percent of the way right. through exodus right. <laughs> it gets pretty brutal. people yeah. hit the wall yeah at the to the actual laws right of the Torah. that's what happened when i tried to read it in order again just... again kudos if you're able to do that and you know go through it ask questions see if this really is there if as we've said uh you think there's some plausibility to suggesting that Christ is the key, then, you know, start with the, start with the gospels. And yeah. Go from there. And I wouldn't recommend, right. you, yeah, you're definitely going to get lost in some of the larger sections where it, there's, if you're really interested in trying to understand Christianity and understand what's being put forward, being lost in some of the visions of Ezekiel 
without like any context of how to interpret them or other things like it's going to be a little more confusing than I'd recommend so I'd recommend more of a thematic I'd, I'd echo um, reading along with the Gospels and so often the Gospels refer to things yes in the Old Testament and just following up on that right where you know when when Matthew right talks about uh, Matthew talks about Christ referring back to Jonah right and the in the three days in the whale and how that prefigures the Son of Man uh, rising again after three days and then you know spending the next day with Jonah right and then coming back I think the the New Testament are like the gospel already gives you such a good foundation um, that it'll be good enough to start at the least right. absolutely and that's that's good that's good advice for those new to the scriptures for those who are Christians are very familiar with the New Testament perhaps this conversation should serve as a spur though to get to know our entire Bibles a bit better just absolutely as, just as Christ did just as the New Testament authors did and see that its riches um, as has often been commented on are, are really inexhaustible yeah that's at least been one of my uh, a big encouragement for me seeing how how rich they are right and you know um, fall in love and start seeing him around every corner basically yeah and and um this conversation has been great it didn't quite go where i was expecting it to toward the end um in terms of i believe since we have a protestants protestants and catholics in this room there could have been a lot to say about interpretation of scripture what 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 is the canon of scripture and and so I, I tried to veil it with the apostles handing down, and then, yeah, I didn't want to get too into the Eucharist with the breaking of the bread. But, oh, but <laughs> I believe the, the Lord's Supper is very important, and that the, the apostolic tradition is very important. But so we'll, leave, we'll leave that conversation. We have like a very juicy set of episodes coming up with uh, the uh, One Holy Catholic and Apostolic Catholic Church. And apostolic so church. so uh, we'll leave some of the debates for that. But uh, this is, I, I feel like I learned a lot from this conversation. It's awesome. been very fruitful. So, so often yeah. we agree on so much more than we disagree. Yeah. And, and especially something this important, it's great to focus on the, cent- the centerpiece. So I, I don't mind that we didn't get derailed on Espe- our disagreements. Especially on this campus, too. You know, Now that we share a street, uh, you know, I guess tomorrow, starting tomorrow on 114th, to launch our southern attack uh, uh, onto campus. That's... <laughs> I guess maybe that's not a good association. But, but regardless. <laughs> well, thanks, guys. It's been good having you on. Um, and to everyone listening, if uh, you, you have any comments or questions, or if you do discover the Lost Princeton Bible and want to let us know, then please, uh, <laughs> yes. please send us an email or uh, yeah, uh, and get in touch, and we'd love to hear from you. Mm-hmm.